God always does what is right. This is to say, God is just. He always acts in conformity with the perfect standard of righteousness. It is to say that God is faithful. He can be trusted always to do what is right. And it is to say that the Lord is all-powerful. So nothing can thwart or hinder his execution of what is right. God always does what is right. As Bible believers, we affirm these statements. We know they correspond to the revelation that we have received about God. God always does what is right. But God does not always make sense. And therein lies a huge dilemma and a challenge for our faith, a matter we've been singing about this morning, particularly in this last song. There are many crises of faith that we face when we do not see what God is doing. It makes no sense. We want to believe that since God is just, since He always does what is right, since He always operates according to that standard, that He will always act as I expect Him to act. But God's ways often fail to line up with our expectations, and when that happens, our faith is shaken. And why is that? We may not realize it, but the reason is that we believe that we must understand what God is doing before we can trust that He acts justly. I can suffer loss. I can face frustration. I can handle disappointment. I can even accept atrocities that happen in this world if I can see what God is doing and how He's working these things together for good. But weak faith does not fare as well when God acts in perplexing ways, particularly when he seems to overlook justice. He seems in those moments to not apply it, and seems then as well to overlook injustice. We know God is just. But when wicked people go untouched, when people do wrong things and nothing happens, we wonder what on earth is wrong with God. And there's plenty of circumstances in this waking world to spawn such doubt, both in our day and in time past. One month ago, and 100 years ago today, the Islamic Ottoman Empire began a religious cleansing of Armenian Christians. The genocide spread throughout Turkey, and it reached all the way into Assyria and Iraq. Christians were identified, they were captured, they were tortured, and they were slaughtered in unconscionable ways by killing squads that were dispatched in the name of Allah. This is mind-boggling. But in the end, 1.2, at least 1.2 million Armenian Christians and at least 250,000 Assyrian Christians were killed because, at least in name, they claimed to follow Jesus. Why does God seem so slow to intervene? The lack of an answer rattles our faith. And for this reason, I thank God for the prophecy of Habakkuk, which addresses the faith-building challenge of learning to trust God when He seems to make no sense and fails to act according to our timetable and according to our expectations. 
This is one of the major battles of faith, and we make our way to this book in a three-part series here over these next three weeks, God willing, to understand the message of this book and to receive and to feed upon its faith-building strength. In order to do that, we well, first you've got to find the book. It really helps electronics uh, at this point in time if you're looking for Habakkuk, but if you don't know quite where that is, start at the back of the Old Testament and work your way forward. It's among the minor prophets. It hides in there because it is a short book, but it is a powerful book and well worth our consideration. But there are a few basic facts that we must have in mind in order to really understand this book at all, if we're going to have any chance. In fact, I would say what we're going to show here, just in a couple of slides, is really information that is essential to make sense of vast stretches of the Old Testament. It doesn't, you don't need a, a, a history degree, but you do need to have a few basic ideas in view. And when you have those ideas, a lot of books will make sense, and sometimes some uh, sections that just mean nothing to you will come alive as you understand a little bit of the background. So we can identify here Israel, the land of promise, that God promises to Abraham and the Israelites live in this land for uh, many, many generations. We know that it serves as something of a land bridge between the major players during uh, the Old Testament era. And the primary among those in Israel's history is Egypt. We know of the deliverance from Egypt. But Egypt, working their way across to the other major powers through the biblical history of the Old Testament... We have the Assyrian Empire to the north here in this red circle, and we have uh, the Babylonian Empire, or sometimes referred to as the Chaldeans, as will be the case in this text. Now, I, I, would, I would plead with you, read the Old Testament. Uh, it is true that the New Testament is obviously more applicable to us on this side of the cross, but read the Old Testament. And know that this situation is going on, and when we consider Israel herself... It's very important to discern the establishment of the monarchy. Kings in Israel begin with the King Saul and David and Solomon, and then there is a split, a division in that empire, which also is very important to recognize. With the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, the monarchy divides. It divides into north and south. In the north, the kingdom of Israel, and in the south, the kingdom of Judah. So we have these two kingdoms. Now, the kingdom of Israel is taken captive by the Assyrian Empire. Uh, you remember the, the red circle, and the northern end is the Assyrian Empire coming down through the land. They take captive the northern kingdom. They're not able to take captive the southern kingdom of Judah because of God's direct intervention. And this, again, will, will bring to life vast stretches of the Old Testament if we just understand this. In fact, it is God's warning about these invasions and deportations that are at the heart of much of the Old Testament Scriptures. God speaks to His people and says, these invaders will come. They will cart you off to their lands, which was a fairly short, uh, in a very short period of time, that this was a practice that was widespread among these powerful nations. Eventually, the southern kingdom, a good bit later, is taken captive by Babylon and deported there. Now watch for the star that star, if you can see that there, is Habakkuk. He is prophesying right before the southern kingdom is going to be invaded by Babylon and taken off there, carted off and reestablished there in Babylon. So this is where he fits in the whole scheme of things. Fairly late in the Old Testament chronology, he prophesies to the southern kingdom of Judah about this Babylonian invasion. God's chosen nation is preserved in the southern kingdom. But that kingdom, as Habakkuk writes, is not in good shape. A situation which leads to a crisis of faith on the part of the prophet Habakkuk. If you found your way there, we pick up with verses 1 through 4 where Habakkuk complains to God about Judah's sinful ways. 
We read in that first verse the heading, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Oracle, simply a message from God to his people. But the Hebrew word, interestingly, can be translated burden. And some English texts actually translate it that way, as a, as a burden. Indeed, Habakkuk has a load of intense concern to dump out before God. And his heavy theme permeates this short book. Habakkuk has no Pollyanna-like look on life. This is gritty realism from beginning to end. And it says here that he, it might catch our attention, it's, a, it's an oracle, it's a burden that he sees. You see it. You remember the comment book of 1 Samuel, that once upon a time, the prophets were known as seers. They saw the message of God, so to speak, and it is a figure of speech. It's a Hebrew way of referring to prophecy, a message from God, sometimes visual, most often only audible, but prophets were called seers. They could see the message of God and they conveyed it to God's people. Now, what is that message? Verse 2. Here it is. Habakkuk complains to God about Judah's sinful ways. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law, the law you gave, your people Israel, is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. How long, he says in verse 2, how long He's been praying fervently to God for a long time, and God has done nothing. What is, what is Habakkuk's specific concern? We see it here in verse 3. He, he's forced to witness unending iniquity and destruction and violence and strife and contention. He's living in the midst of an unfaithful, covenant-breaking, spiritually rebellious people of God. People God has chosen as His own. And this is how they are living and Habakkuk is grieved. He says, God, why don't you do something about this sin? He's in the middle of what has become a decadent people. Following the thorough but largely superficial reforms of King Josiah, the most likely setting of the book, we cannot be absolutely sure. But it seems to make good sense that he's in a time of great decadence, which does not seem to accord with Josiah's time, but with the sons of Josiah that follow and were there in the airplane crashing. The nation is about to hit the ground. And Habakkuk just continues to question, why will God not act? The moral condition of Judah stinks. In fact, verse 4, the law is paralyzed. The Hebrew word can mean to grow numb with cold. We've got cold hearts toward the law of Moses. We're not listening to what God has said. And the wicked surround the righteous. Keep note of that idea. The wicked surround the righteous like a pack of wolves and there is a widespread miscarriage of justice. Justice is a key word in this book, a key word in this chapter. He's concerned about the justice of God, about the injustice that is taking place in Israel. God, why don't you do something? So he's grieved seeing this decadence, seeing the covenant-breaking people, and he prays and agonizes as God seems to look past it all, verse 3. In verse 2, he cries out violence. Be like on a, being on a city street and there's some police officers standing against the wall of a building and suddenly somebody picks your pocket, they take your wallet or they steal your purse and go running off and you say, thief, thief! And the police officers just keep right on talking. They can hear you, but they just go right on talking as if you don't exist. 
And the thief runs off. This is how he feels about God. I've been crying violence. People breaking your law and you do nothing. Why is this? Like manner, he cries out that God would contend for the glory of his name by administering justice and stopping the tyranny of his own people. God's ways make no sense to Habakkuk. Why would God not do something to stop this moral outrage? But God has been silent until now. We find his answer coming at verse 5, and as it does, it comes without really even introduction. It's almost like God just coming out of nowhere speaks finally. And he said, we look now at God's promise to punish the sin of Judah in a very unique way. He says, look, verse 5, and by the way, that's a plural Look, and plural imperative, as are these other imperatives, wonder, be astonished, or plural imperatives. He's now talking to the nation. As he answers the prophet, he talks to the people, and he says, look, look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astonished, be immensely astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Well, that sounds hopeful. How do parents respond to children who complain to them? Well, there's, there's probably an infinite number of ways, but one way is stop your whining. Quit the complaining. This is nothing more than that. I don't want to hear it anymore. Stop complaining. The other thing is children complain to parents, and the parents say, you're right. We're going to deal with that in time. That's how God answers Habakkuk here. He doesn't say, quit whining. He says, Judah's immoral condition, you are right. And I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to do wonders that will astound you. God's not been on vacation. All along he has witnessed Judah's sin, and now he reveals his plan. Verse 6, what starts with great prospect for Habakkuk now has to stun him. Now God has said, you're going to be astonished. Here we go, verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. That is, the sovereign Lord of the nations has been incubating the Chaldean army, the Neo-Babylonian Empire. He's been incubating them, preparing them to serve as a tool of discipline for Judah. I've been silent. I want to say this respectfully, but kind of in a sense, God says, I've been silent, but I've been working on something here. It's something pretty big. I've been raising up an empire to deal with this very issue that you're talking about. The Neo-Babylonian Empire on the pages of history, it almost screams the sovereignty of God. They just come out of, almost out of nowhere. They rise so quickly to power, and it stuns everybody. They defeat the Assyrian army. It seemed the Assyrian Empire was invincible, but Babylon beat, defeats them and then defeats the Egyptians at Carchemish, north of, of Israel. Not long before, few would have ever believed Babylon could rule the ancient world, but suddenly here they are. 605, Nebuchadnezzar, the son of Nabopolassar, the uh, king of the empire, defeats Egypt, and now Babylon looks around and says, hey, we're it. We've settled down Assyria, we've defeated them, we've defeated Egypt, we're it. There's nobody to tell us what to do anymore. Soon their violent, cruel, and rash agenda would be pressed by an invincible and ruthless army bent on plundering the nations. And in the crosshairs of those purposes is the land of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. There's irony in verse 7. They see themselves as administering self-determined justice, not realizing that they are really a chess piece in the hand of a sovereign God who rules the nations from heaven's throne. I'm taking you from this block on the board, and I'm moving you to this block on the board, and that's where you'll stay. That's what you'll do. 
Sovereign God moves them to exactly the place where He wants them to be. The reason God does not act as we think He should never stems from His lack of interest. They say it again. The reason that God does not act as we think He should never stems from disinterest. It never stems from a lack of sovereign power over the nations. That's never the reason. Verse 8, here they are. Here they come. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves, hungry from the day, ready to eat, prowling about the edges of the flock. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They come from afar. As they come so swiftly, you don't have no idea that they're there. It's one thing to face an army who's been camped outside your city walls for a month. This army comes in. They, 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 they don't, you don't even know where they are. They just show up on their horses. Fourth century theologian Jerome described the invasion of the Huns in his day. And he has some lines here I think are instructive to us. He says, They fill the whole earth with slaughter and panic alike, and they flitter hither and thither on their swift horses. They were at hand. That means they were there, everywhere, before they were expected. By their speed, they outstripped rumor. And they took pity neither upon religion, nor rank, nor age, nor wailing childhood. This is a theme in a fallen world. They outstripped rumor. That's, in a sense, what he's saying here. They get there before the reports of their coming reach you. And as they come, verse 9, they all come for violence. All their faces forward. That is, they're coming at you. They're not retreating. They gather captives like sand. Like a child scoops up sand in a bucket on the shore. So they come and scoop up their enemies. At kings they scoff, verse 10. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. They build up earth a earthen ramp up against the walls and therefore bring their soldiers and their battering rams, their equipment, right up to the top of the wall and they have no concern whatsoever. No one can stop them. Then they sweep by, verse 11, they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. They're so powerful and successful, they move rapidly on from one conquest to another. And you know, we stop here. We say, there is absolutely nothing commendable in the Chaldean army. Nothing. These are godless, wicked, torturous, ruthless, selfless idolaters who are in this for nothing more than themselves. And God has picked the chess piece up by the head and plopped it down to do His bidding. We need to put ourselves for a moment in Habakkuk's place. As he's hearing this message, this isn't just, he's not sitting in a classroom at a desk with a teacher there, kind of filtering this philosophical conversation. This is his city. They're coming here. They're going to come unannounced. They're going to come quickly. They are going to come with no desire but to destroy you. They're coming at you. How do you read that? How do you filter that? What fear might there be in your heart as you would hear these things? This is coming at you. Well, God's answered Habakkuk's concern about Judah's rampant sin, hasn't he? But once again, God's ways make no sense to Habakkuk. And so we find his second complaint here, 
about the injustice of Babylon's invasion, beginning at verse 12. And it begins with setting a foundation. So it helps us understand how Habakkuk is thinking. But he's lodged his first complaint against Judah. God has answered, here's what I'm going to do. And now Habakkuk really has a problem. But he starts here, and it's instructive. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Yes, he is. You're from everlasting. What is another way of saying that in this context? You write the pages of history. You're from everlasting. There was nothing here when you were. But you're the creator. You're the sustainer. You're the author of history. You're the holy one. There is no one like you. You are utterly distinct. I'm speaking to you as this God and with this respect. And he says, we shall not die. Now, Some commentators take this as he's denying the reality. We're not going to die. I I refuse to believe what you've said, God. But it doesn't fit in any of the context of this chapter, it doesn't seem to me. I'd be respectful of those who take that view, but I, I, I don't think it fits. I think what he's saying is we will not die. We are your covenant people. You have made your promises. I know I can trust you. A remnant will survive. We will not die. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. So that's what I think conflicts with the idea that he's saying, I deny what you're saying. You have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. He's acknowledging that what God has said will happen. It's an expression of confident faith in the Lord. So it's interesting, as we analyze this, in his confusion, Habakkuk turns to what he knows about God. A valuable tool by which to strengthen our faith in the Lord in confusing times. What do I know about Him? I'm going to turn to that, and I'm going to think about that. When God's ways confuse you, recite and trust all that you know about Him. You say, well, yeah, what a bit. I mean it. This is really helpful. When he's confusing, when you don't get his ways, think hard about what you know. Recite your faith in who God is. Start, he's the creator. He's the sustainer of everything in this world. He is a God of faithfulness, a God of truth, a God of righteousness. If he has not withheld his son from us, how will he not with him give us all things? I know these things. Recite them. Think about them. This is what Habakkuk is doing. He's saying, my faith is... I mean, it was shaky a little bit here to begin with. Now it's really shaking. I need to go to the character of God and recite. What do I know? You are holy. You have ordained this judgment. You are the sovereign Lord of heaven. You are our rock. You will sustain your people. You will prove true to your covenant. And yes, you've established this nation for reproof because you are the sovereign Lord. But, verse 13, here he goes again. You are of purer eyes than to see evil. You cannot look at wrong. So why would you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up a man more righteous than he? Now, God can look, obviously, at wrong in one sense. He sees everything, but God cannot look on evil with pleasure or with approval or even with indifference. And so how, says Habakkuk, can you watch the Babylonian army destroy Judah? That doesn't seem just. That doesn't make sense. Judah is living in rebellion against you, but they are your people. Babylon? We've heard the reports on these people. They're wicked They're vicious. They're selfish idolaters. How can you bring them against us? They're far worse than Judah. And there's a lesson here for us. When we find God's ways confusing, whether that is when injustice seems to reign or simply times when life is not working for us, when we find God's ways confusing, we so often say this, I just wish God would tell me what to do. I just wish God would tell me what he's thinking. Have you not said that? I wish he would just give us a word and tell us which decision to make here. I wish he would just counsel us and speak from heaven and tell us what we should know. This is a really tough situation and I wish God would talk to us. 
Let's learn this from this passage. You may not want to know what he has to say. If he hasn't made it clear, maybe that's just as well. We express our wish that God would explain himself because we want to put God on trial, ultimately. We want to receive an explanation from God that makes sense of things. Oh, I get it. You want me to go there. Well, then all of this trial and mess makes sense. You're okay, God. I justify you. What wickedness in our heart. And I know I say it too. I wish God would just tell us what to do here. I don't mean that it's an evil statement. But look deep within your soul. Many times what it's saying is, I don't really trust him and I want him to prove himself. So... Back at God, his answer, he just didn't like what he heard. It actually took him into further depths of concern. The, the, the wicked are swallowing up people more righteous than themselves. I mean, first we've got your people rebelling against you. Now we've got people coming to discipline them who are more wicked than they are. How does that work? God once swallowed up the Egyptian army with the Red Sea, but now the Babylonian army was about to swallow up all that was left of God's people in the promised land. Indeed, that was God's chess move. It's exactly what was going to happen. This is what was going to happen. Verse 14, you make mankind, says Habakkuk, like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. They're, they're like fish that are just swimming around in the sea. And what happens? He, that is the Chaldean, the Babylonian empire, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net and he gathers them in his dragnet and he rejoices and is glad. It's really some interesting imagery that's playing out here. The Babylonians were known and would have been known by this point to Habakkuk. One of the things that they did when they captured soldiers is they would string them together by putting a hook in their lower lip on a line and running the line from soldier to soldier, captive to captive. Kind of gives, make sure your friend stays in line, a whole new meaning, doesn't it? But you've got this string and you're walking in a single file line with a hook, a hole through your lip and you're all tied together. I mean, one of you runs, it's really ugly. They were ruthless, wicked people. And we, there's a relief that has been found by archaeologists which show the four major gods of the Babylonians with a big fishing net dragging captured soldiers in that net while the Chaldean soldiers, the Babylonian soldiers, are standing around watching and laughing. It's not a pretty picture. We're just like fish in their net. And here's what's going to happen. Verse 16, therefore he sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. If he then, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? He drags this net of fish onto the shore and turns it over and dumps those fish there in that pitiful pile of captured victims and then goes back out to sea to catch more and we're just one of those takes. That's who we're going to be, just dumped on the ground like fish that have been caught in a net. And so Habakkuk questions, how can God remain silent? Will this go on forever? Verse 17, I think it would may perhaps be best to take verse 1 of chapter 2 along with this because he stops his speech to God. He stops this second complaint and he waits. Verse 1 of chapter 2, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. I look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. It's a lot of debate about whether that's and what he will answer concerning my complaint, which makes perfect sense. But I think it may be the right reading here, what I will answer concerning my complaint. I'm going to wait for God to speak and then I'm going to have to come up with a position here. But there's a great attitude shift on Habakkuk's part. And I think we have to read verse 12 into all of this. He is praising God. He is 
seeking God. He is being respectful to God, but he's just saying, I don't get it. But the attitude shift that we find here in chapter 2 and verse 1 is that Habakkuk moves from complaining to watching. Complaining in the best sense of the word, but now he's watching. Habakkuk may anticipate God's rebuke, but in any event, he takes his stand and he watches for God's answer. He watches for the fulfillment of God's promise to discipline Judah with the Chaldean army. He can't figure this out. It makes no sense. Why would God use a more wicked people to discipline a less wicked people? He waits for God to answer. He waits to formulate his own interpretive answer. But what I would say then fundamentally is we leave Habakkuk here. A bit of a cliffhanger indeed. We just kind of leave him here. I think it's right to leave him here. Because of time, perhaps. <laughs> but it really is a good thing to do. Because he's now in a position of waiting patiently. There's gold in that observation. He's just waiting patiently. God always does what is right. He almost never follows our timetable or the methods we expect, however, as He does what is right. And waiting patiently is part of the life of faithful people. To wait patiently for the justice and the goodness of God. To step forward in the maturity of Habakkuk's faith and perhaps in ours as we trust this. So he rests his case and waits. And that's where he stands as we leave this first chapter. Just a few observations as we think and apply and seek to uh, inculcate further the benefits of this book for our personal walk with the Lord. Know this, that it's first we must have this knowledge. Know this, God always does what is right. Know that. Put a deep stake into that and hold on to it. But he always does what is right does not mean that he is under obligation to conform to our expectations. And very often he does not. He is always right. He does not always make sense. And so in growing faith, in deepening faith, we as God's people will rejoice with what Isaiah says in chapter 55 of his prophecy. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That humility to say that, the rejoicing in that truth, God's ways are above mine, and how foolish we are as we so often try to explain all of them and understand all of them. It's wise for us to have this in our wheel well. To have this in the hopper of our faith. God's ways are higher than mine. I'm not going to be able to understand them all. George Swinock said in a commentary on Psalms by Charles Spurgeon, I've not forgotten this phrase, it serves so well. He says, resolve never to be dumb when God is deaf. Resolve never to be dumb, silent, when God is deaf, when He doesn't seem to hear. We learn this too from Habakkuk. He prays, he seeks the face of God. When confusing times come, when trials come that are greater than we can understand, when we look at the world's events and we just say, how can God countenance this? How can He put up with this? Pray. The doubter who stands back with arms kind of folded and says, I'm going to see how God gets out of this one, see if I trust Him or not, That's, that is bad. Don't go that way. Go to Him. Fall on your knees. Cry out to God and even say, why? How long will this go on? How long will this be? What are you doing? Seek Him in prayer. Turn your face toward Him, not away from Him when you enter times of doubt. The key is that the just will live by faith in a God who is trustworthy. The just will live not by explaining God. The just will live by faith. 
in a God that can't always explain, but in a God that we know is trustworthy. So know that God always does what's right, but not always in conformity with my expectations. And secondly, we see here certainly that God reigns with sovereignty, with sovereign authority over the nations. No matter what the atrocities that He sovereignly permits in the process of working out His saving purposes, He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And again, in this, I need to put a deep stake. God can be trusted to run the world and He can be trusted to channel history to the end for which He has created humanity. He can do this. You ready? He can do this without my help. Wow, isn't that obvious sitting here right now? It doesn't get so obvious when we get clouded. He can do this without my help. Because He is the covenant-keeping God who loves His people perfectly, He works all things together for our good in His time and in His way. The kind of faith that demands that I understand what God is doing before I sign off on His plans is very immature. It verges on the blasphemous. And in this vein, I must then admit that God is not desperately committed to orchestrating the world to make me wealthy, comfortable, prosperous, and to get my way. Just really not overly worked up about that. We are, but he's not. He is in the business of reigning with absolute power and wisdom and love over his creation to magnify his name, to save his people, such that we will be filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory at the end of it all when he's put the pen to the period of life on this earth. And by the way, the end is not the triumph of America. That's not the end. It is the triumph of his kingdom. America will crumble and it will fall if Christ's return is delayed. Babylon skyrocketed to prominence and then it flamed out about as fast as it rose to power. When God was through with Babylon, He was through. And it was like He just shook off the dust off His feet and and cleaned His hands and He was done. And great and glorious Babylon was gone. And so it will be with America. He doesn't need us. All nations have an expiration date, including this one. Only God's kingdom is forever. We're reminded of this. As we contemplate this reality, it is perhaps instructive that Habakkuk does not devise a flight plan. He stands his ground. God does not counsel him, nor does he seem to consider getting out of Dodge before the gunfight. It's an amazing thing. He says, I'm standing on the watchtower and I'm waiting for them to come and I'm waiting for a word from you. I'm not going anywhere. We see him watching for this coming enemy, not running to Egypt. And I think the only reason for it is that he is serving God's kingdom. He's so busy about serving the Lord and communicating to His people that He says, come what may, I'm going to stand at my post and I'm going to do my job. And that's to speak for the Lord. So what, is, what are we seeing? The just will live by faith in a trustworthy God. He doesn't put His tail between His legs and run away. The just will live by faith in a trustworthy God. Now, let me just, for just a few moments, say there may be a creeping sense inside of you that, you know, I'm not entirely comfortable with the fact that God always does what's right. Because I don't know what that means about me. I don't know what that means about my future. That thought may scare you, and perhaps it should, that God is a just God. Thinking of standing before the Holy One of Israel, the perfect God of the universe, 
who has never sinned and never done what is wrong and will never miscarry justice, you think, I've broken his law. I've disappointed him with my life. I've not loved my neighbor as myself, and I've certainly not loved him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't know that I want to stand before a God who always does what is right. It might be one of the best thoughts that's gone through your mind in a long time. It might be a very, very good thought. Let me talk to you just briefly here. If you're thinking that way, do you remember the righteous were surrounded by the wicked? Well, there is a sense in which that is really pointing forward to the ultimate moment where the wicked surrounded the righteous. And that is when the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God and the Lamb of God, taking on flesh and coming to this world, living a perfect life, was surrounded by those who wanted to kill Him. Ruthlessly, torturously, with glee and laughter, they wanted to kill Jesus Christ. God's Messiah. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night of His crucifixion, right as the night before His crucifixion, He cried out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? In that garden, He prayed that this cup would pass. But then as the day came, and He hung on the cross, what He knew would happen, happened. My God, why have you forsaken me? Surrounded by the godless, tortured to death, and yet the message of the apostles was this in Acts 2. This Jesus, said Peter, delivered up according to the definite plan Delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That is that God, the Father, took the chess piece of His Son and put Him there. And what did He do there? What did He do as He was surrounded by those who would torture him to death and take his life. This total miscarriage of justice. Not this temporary, seeming miscarriage of justice, but this absolute miscarriage of justice. Why? We would cry out, why? As he cried out, why have you forsaken me? There on that cross, Jesus Christ took the place of sinners to suffer the eternal consequences of their sin, there bearing the full judgment of a just God. And that's the good news. That's the good news. That because Christ has done that, rather than boasting in ourselves, as we talked last week, we boast in what Jesus did, and we know that there the penalty of my sin was paid so that I can stand in the justice of I can stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ before God. He was surrounded by the wicked. He was tortured to death. It was the ultimate miscarriage of justice, but there, God, who always does what is right, gave to us the way of sins forgiven and of a righteous standing before the Lord. And so what do we learn again? The just will live by faith. Not by works and their own good deeds, but the just will live by faith in the God who is trustworthy. Perhaps this doesn't all sink into you just yet, but I want to encourage you. If you're saying, I don't know that I want to stand before a just God because of my sin, there is a way of forgiveness and grace that He has purchased Come, receive that gift without money, without works, without self-confidence and with no idols. Come to Him alone and receive His gift of salvation. The just 
will live by faith in a trustworthy God who always does what is right. Let's bow. Lord, as we come before you in prayer, we need you. Those who know not Christ as Savior are utterly dependent upon your call of faith to them. And we pray that there would be response and repentance and faith and trust in what Christ has done. Open eyes to see this truth. And Lord, for those of us who know you as our Savior, we're gathered here today with thanksgiving of heart to know that the just live by faith not by our understanding of all that you're doing, and certainly not by our works of righteousness. And in this we rejoice. We give thanks that you're deepening our faith to know that in times of trial and suffering and heartache, and more broadly, as we look at the atrocities of this world that take place, as we look at genocide and injustice and the mockery of your name among the nations, we rest patiently and wait while our hearts grieve While we do not always understand, we know that you are a God who is trustworthy. You are faithful. You always do what is right, and in this we rest. And pray that you would teach us what it means that the just, those who have been justified by your grace, live by faith. They come to that life in faith, and they live out that life in faith. We rejoice in this and ask God that you'll deepen us in it. And right now in the privacy of our heart as we cry out to you in our souls, take our sin, help us remove it, teach us where we do not walk in faith, and teach us your trustworthiness. May we cling to this so that in those moments of suffering and confusion and trial and difficulty, we may have an anchor for the soul that does not let loose. And I pray that you'll equip us as your people to withstand that day. And perhaps someday, should it be the case that we, like the Armenian and Syrian Christians of a century ago, face the call to die for Christ, I pray that we would remember that the just by faith will live. Give us that life in our Savior and strengthen us in it. In His name we pray. Amen.